Today, I want to I talk about what happens when God who has given you gifts, when God who has given you a capability, when God who has blessed you with a call or a conviction, hasn't given you an opportunity to live that conviction out. It is true that God has given us passions and interests and callings and convictions uh, worth spending our lives on. But, but it's also true for many of you that God who has gifted you with passion hasn't given you an opportunity to live that passion. And so on the one hand, you're gifted with what God has given to you, and on the other hand, frustrated because there doesn't seem to be a place for you to use those gifts. And this morning, I want to talk about that. I want to talk to, to, to those of you who are here, and maybe you're unemployed this morning, and you know that you have been given a gift for the world. You know that you have been blessed by God with things that can be needs, but you haven't been given an opportunity. Maybe you're here this morning and you are working and you know that God has blessed you and used you at your job, but you still sense that there's more uh, for you to do. There is more for you uh, to, to, to bring to where you are. I want to talk to you this morning as well. Maybe you're here and as you integrate these sermons into your life to the best you can, you feel stifled or hindered. I want us this morning to look at passages of Scripture that will, that will answer the questions, what do we do when God, who has given us gifts, closes doors so that we can't use those gifts? What do we do when God says no? What do we do when God says you're gifted but not you? What do we do when God says to us you're passionate but not yet? What do we do when God, who has given us a Abilities and gifts doesn't say anything at all. Our first passage, we'll look at a man named Moses. And if you're not familiar with Moses, Moses is, uh, or he was, a shepherd. He was in the family business. He worked for his father-in-law, shepherding uh, his sheep, and Moses got hired by somebody else. He got hired to do another job, namely to lead a revolution. He, he got a job uh, working for God, and God employed him to bring the people out of Israel. Now Moses had a speech impediment and he tried to use that to his advantage, but God wouldn't let him get out of the job. So Moses got this new position to lead the people out of bondage. And Moses is a very um, uh, a strong man in the history of Israel. He's one of the most notable people in all of Scripture. He is the lawgiver, so he is revered in Old Testament studies, in theology, and in Jewish studies. He is, an, uh, he is a, 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 a leader worth esteeming, and yet he is a leader with problems. He is a leader with flaws. He is a leader with issues. Moses had a lot of issues, but, but the one that comes to mind for me is his inability to control his 
temper. Moses had an anger problem. Moses um, was, was not really good at controlling his anger. And, and so here you have Moses, a man who has anger issues, if you will, and you have Israel, a group of people who in Scripture is often talked about by themselves as a stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious people. So you have a man who is angry, who can't check his anger, and you have a stubborn and rebellious people being led by this man. And when you have those two, I don't do math well, but those things add up to trouble. Moses gets frustrated with this impossible Hebrew people. They, they had been asking for more and more evidence throughout their wilderness wandering of God's presence. And, and Moses would pray for them and Moses would minister to them. But they couldn't get convinced in their hearts as a people that God was always, always close and always around and always powerful. And so Moses was a frustrated leader frustrated and angry. And God knew about Moses' you know, proclivities and his personality and his junk. God knew that. And, and so, and so uh, God uh, gave Moses very clear instructions. He, he told Moses, we're working on your anger, but there are certain things that even in your junk, you don't get to do. You don't get to hit things. Anger, in a way, is a kind of implicit violence. It's sort of an implied violence, anger is. It's not always, but, but then there's sort of this explicit expression of anger. And God says, you, know, you can be angry because that's just what you're dealing with right now. But what you don't get to do is strike things. Moses, uh, when he's with Israel one of these days, they're at Mirabah, and he gets upset. He gets angry. He has a stick. And by the way, if there's a person you know who doesn't handle anger well, and they're walking around with a stick, a big stick, this is a forewarning, you know. And so, so Moses is clenching this rod, this staff, and he strikes a rock. And God, being present, says, hey, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't I tell you you get to do things, but there are things you don't get to do? Moses. Moses gets, uh, uh, Moses gets a performance improvement plan. His employer calls him in and says, you know, this probation that you've been on is going to end and you're getting fired. This is notice for you. You know, I, I told you there's certain things you don't get to do. So here it is. You're going to have to deal with the consequence of your action. Some of you have been reprimanded at your job and it's not fun, right? not fun when your boss is the Lord of all creation because God doesn't like his rocks to be struck. So Moses, Moses, Moses is leading this people and now he's ineligible to see his leadership finished in the promised land. And so in Deuteronomy 32, that's sort of background for you for these verses that we will read together. Chapter 32, verses 48 to 52 says, and I'll read this for you. You should warm up your voice because at some point I'm going to bring you in to read later on. Not this passage, but uh, be forewarned. 48 says, that very day the Lord spoke to Moses. Go up to this mountain of Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho. 
and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession. And die on the mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of the Mirabah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. I think of this passage and I can't help but see and I want you to see glimpses of the gospel here because while God is clear and firm that Moses does not get to go to the promised land, there, there, is, there is good news here. <clears throat> God who restricts Moses' feet still opens Moses' eyes. God's wrath here, God's punishment here of Moses not being able to go to the promised land is blessed with mercy. God's wrath is laced with love. It's enveloped in compassion. He lets Moses see this promise. There is a consequence of sin, but there is a reminder of mercy. And so God is here being good to a leader who has made mistakes, being good to a leader who has failed and who is on his way out. But he is not on his way out without the opportunity to see what Israel will experience. So what what does Moses do here? What does Moses do when God essentially says no? He does not bemoan his situation. He does not grumble. He does not complain. He is, after all, a man who is angry. So we would expect that from him. But what does he do? Uh, And we didn't read this. But if you have your Bible and you look down to chapter 33, we ended chapter 32. And if your Bible has headings, you will know what he does. Moses blesses Israel. He doesn't complain He blesses. He pronounces the favor of God upon them. That is what a blessing is. It is a pronouncement of God's favor upon an assembled congregation. So Moses is blessing his people. And I submit to us that this is one way for us to handle when God says no to something that you and I truly want. This is one way to respond to some job that you'd like to have but that you do not get. This, this, this blessing is one way to respond to the relationship you want to flourish even though the door is closed. Now, I understand, at least I think I do, what this really means. Because when we pronounce God's favor over something that we don't get, it takes remarkable maturity. It's not easy. To look at what you cannot engage, to look at what you cannot walk upon, to look at what you cannot have and pronounce God's favor. But Moses does. 
If we were to read his words of blessing, he does not become stingy. He becomes generous. We can look down the page and see his lavish and rich words for these tribes of Israel. Each blessing is rich and detailed. And he who God has told no to speaks words of faith. And I want to ask you, church, if you can see yourself beginning to do the same. Maybe you're here this morning and you you have a job and your job has changed your schedule. You're a part of a small group and, and you won't be able to stay in that small group. They meet on Tuesday nights and you have to work on Tuesday nights. And and my question to you, in other words, is whether you can stand on tiptoes and look into the future of that small group and pronounce God's favor into a future that you won't participate in. Can you see a door closing and rather than groan, pronounce favor? It is a mark of God's presence in you. This this is a man who who is used to the glory of God. This is the man who who the Shekinah, the glory of God, rests on his face when he comes down from a mountain. And yet God has told him, this man who is glorious, this man who has God's glory on him, you can't go to the promised land. And this glorious man takes it and blesses the people of Israel. Sometimes God says no. There are times, secondly, when God says, not you. In a moment, we'll look at a passage of scripture about David. Now, David is um, a cherished king in the First Testament. He is the second king of Israel. He follows up another king who also got fired from his job. Saul didn't uh, take God's direction very well. The Bible says a lot about hirings and firings, I'm coming to notice. Um, Saul was called uh, to be the first king, tall man from the tribe of Benjamin, a revered man, but he didn't obey God. He saved the precious things from the Amalekites. And so when he saved those things that God told him to burn up, he, uh, uh, he got burned up. God burned him up. He got fired. And so um, David is the second king, and he comes after Saul. David was obedient mostly to God. Uh, he was mostly obedient. And here this passage records a response from this king to knowing that he would not get to build God a house. He lives in a palace He says this throughout the scripture. I live in all of this splendor. I live in all of this wonder. And God's God's tent is portable and mobile. And this cannot be. So I want to build God a beautiful temple where we might encounter God and worship God. And and so look at uh, 2 Chronicles 22 verses 1 through 11. Notice the king here. He is preparing for a future he won't see. He's praying a powerful prayer for his successor. He buys all these materials which are ingredients for a temple that he won't get to build. He has assembled architects and carpenters and artisans and stone cutters and painters 
He's got the drawings in front of him, but he, he won't stand in this sanctuary. This is phenomenal and generous of David. And I think what he does reaches us in two ways. I think what he does uh, comes to us in two ways. He, he, and, I, and in some ways it's similar to what Moses does when he blesses Israel, but it's a bit more narrow uh, what David does here. Say, say the word preparation. Say the word prayer. First preparation. David prepares for this future that he won't participate in. He builds into his son Solomon. He 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 equips uh, Solomon by going and getting all of the things that Solomon will need for this building project. And my question for us is: Are we building into people who will come after? Are we building, if you will, the people who will replace us? Uh, we ask our ministry leaders to do this. And so if you're in ministry, you should know that our leaders are charged to find people who will come and lead after they are gone. Our leaders cannot always lead. Sometimes they will get tired. Sometimes we will to ask, him, ask them to stop leading. I don't know. But leaders cannot always lead, and they have to find as a part of leadership people who will come after them so that ministry doesn't focus on the person of the leader. And David is doing that. David is pulling in and preparing for his future. This is the end of discipleship. After all, Christian discipleship really is uh, when we replicate our faith in others. It is not just you knowing Jesus and you being able to study Jesus and, and say what Jesus says. It is not just for you to personally know Jesus and to have a testimony yourself. Being a follower of Jesus always ends in reproduction and replication. It is you preparing for the future of faith. It is you saying in your life, somebody will need to hear the message of faith that I can't reach. So I need to tell others and prepare others to do this as well. David is doing this when he comes and gets Solomon, when he gives this money and this project, he has capacity, he has genius, he has ability. This is not about David not being able to do something. This is about God closing a door and saying to David, it's not for you to do. David does what I think we're called to do as God's people. He readies his son. He prepares the next person. Secondly, he prays. And I'm going to tell you very clearly that I think we need to add a prayer to our seasons of waiting and wondering and our seasons of disappointment when we know that we won't be able to stay and build things that we really believe God deserves. David prays. In verse 11, he prays for Solomon. He says, the Lord be with you so you may succeed. What David is praying here is not just kind words for his son. David is praying for the success of the person who will take his spot. 
consider that. David is praying for the person who comes behind him. You know who I want uh, to listen, especially to this point this morning. I want the person who recently got dumped. And you see your ex-boyfriend with somebody else to see this prayer as the prayer you pray for the person who took your spot. There are one or two people looking and saying, you have got to be kidding. That is essentially what this word is calling for. This is not just a father saying this is a family dynasty and you get to do what I've done. This is a man, a king, a man of power saying I can do this. And for some reason, God has closed this door. He has opened it for you and I am going to pray for your success. For some of you, this looks like looking for a promotion at your job. And you know that your boy down the hall has applied for the same promotion. And y'all talk, y'all civil, you know, because y'all kind of friends, you know, at least at the job. And, and you know you're equipped for the job. And he knows he's equipped for the promotion. And you know he's wrong, right? You know that you're the better person for the promotion. And so you're waiting for this. And, and what this prayer and what this passage is saying is that, 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 that when you're waiting for a decision to be made, you're praying for the success of the person who gets the job you want. The Lord be with you so that you may succeed. Now, perhaps that's too much for you today. Maybe you're right with it. Maybe, maybe you can start with the first two words of this prayer, the Lord. Maybe you can't see yourself praying the whole thing. Maybe you can see yourself starting with the Lord. Now, for those of you who are looking and saying, well, you know, I just broke up with my ex, and, and I'm saying more like, oh, Lord, if I had to pray this, it's just, oh, Lord. The truth is that praying like this is hard. And the truth is, praying like this is always the work of God in you. You can't fix your mouth to pray for the success of your ex's next. You can't make yourself pray that. The only way you pray that, the only way you pray for a person who is now over you that you trained, the only way you pray that is if the Holy Spirit is at work in you. If the Holy Spirit is giving you words to say. If the Holy Spirit has so gripped your heart that it doesn't even matter to you what used to matter. I call it, I call it the, the second nature. Because otherwise it's unnaturally natural for you to pray that way. But for Christians who have a different nature, when we have a second redeemed nature, we don't fight against love. We don't fight against this generosity because God has given us a renewed 
nature. So that when God says, not you, we can pray like David does. God says, no. God says, not you. Thirdly, God says, not yet. What do we do when God says, not yet? We will look at John 21, where the disciples, after Jesus' resurrection, are on the Sea of Tiberias. This is after the Savior has risen. John 21, 1 through 11. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Remember that. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. Not a whole lot after that. He said to them, cast your net, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now this passage goes on a few more verses, but I just want to deal with these uh, verses here, uh, 1 through 6. The disciples are here after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus has already showcased his power and his authority in rising bodily from the grave. His power is undeniable. Simon and his friends go fishing. For some unknown reason, they, 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 they take refuge in what they know they're good at. They are fishermen who became evangelists and leaders. They used to be fishermen. And so here they are on the Sea of Tiberias. And, and, and these disciples have gone through uh, several days of emotional upheaval. They, they, they have seen their teacher and their Lord killed. Jesus dying on a cross. Jesus placed in a tomb. They've seen it. They've run away from the horror of it. And, and they've gone all the way to the other emotional extreme and seen Jesus alive again, risen from the grave. They have the shock and the deep sorrow on the one hand, and they have the thrilling feature of joy undeniable because Jesus is alive again. And the text has them on the water doing what they know well, what they are familiar with, what they are pros at. They weren't praying on the water for God to help. They, they didn't need God's help. They were good at this. And yet they're cornered by discouragement. They failed. And I... I 
I, I, I want to just mention that when these disciples are moving from emotion to emotion, when they're moving from joy to sorrow and grief and excitement, these guys go to what is familiar. And, and some of you need to hear this because you in your own life are experiencing trouble and discouragement and depression and burdens and you're feeling that and then you come and maybe there's a slice of joy. There's an experience of greatness and you're, you're sort of between God being mighty and powerful and believing that and then going further into the deep darkness and the horror of your life. And I want to say to you as a pastor to, 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 to be aware of the tendency in your life to, to go to what is familiar. Because the disciples go to fishing. For us, we may go to different kinds of things when we're so good at something that is not bringing us success. I said this morning, and they didn't really get it, and I don't know if you will, but these disciples were pros, and, you know, you're good at certain things, and you know how to get things done. You know how to bait hooks and to set lures. You know how to shut up so that the fish won't get afraid. You know how to get what you need. You know, and I said to the women in the earlier service, I said, the truth of the matter is you want a man. You you know how to get a man. It's not a question of whether or not you know what to do to get a man. They couldn't really get it. They, this, I had to back off because I was talking to a different crowd. And maybe I'm talking to the same crowd. So I said to, I said to the brothers, I said, well, brothers, you all know what I mean. There are certain things you can be good at, especially in your unnatural nature. I'm still getting that same look. Anybody know what I'm talking about? No, y'all don't? All right. These disciples go to the familiar. And church, can I tell you that wherever you go when you have moved from one extreme emotion to the other, can I tell you, just like John said, that Jesus is on the shore. When you go back to the habit that is usual and comfortable. When you see the things you see when life is hard, when you put yourself in the predicament that you normally do, when you can't do anything else but be discouraged, when you get there, Jesus is already cooking you a meal. They couldn't even smell the fish that Jesus had already been cooking for them. That's what he was doing in the text. And you see it later. He was making them breakfast, still hoping to nourish them in the midst of this disillusionment and failure. They went to the familiar and Jesus was already there making waves. What did they do in this text? They're there. They're on the water. They're trying. What did they do that may be worth lifting up to us? The one thing that I think they did that I want you to see is they did not give up at their work. They kept at the fishing. They didn't see the fruit or the success of their work, but they didn't quit. And I want to say to you that the worst time for you to relent the worst time for you to 
quit, and this may not make any real sense to you at first, but the first time for you to quit is when you're exhausted. The worst time for you to quit and to stop is when you're discouraged. These disciples give us a a way of seeing discouraged people continuing at what God has given them the ability to do. They stay at it. They have failed. They don't know when God is going to bring them fish. They've been there all night. So they're they're, they're sort of battling between knowing that there are things that they know how to do. There are things that they know how to control. They can control the lines, but they can't control when the fish come, but they don't quit. Can I tell you, the worst time for you to stop coming to church is when you don't feel like coming to church. Come to church when you're suffering. Stay at home when you're happy. No, I mean, if, if you got to pick, you know, if you're in the habit of choosing, if you're going to choose one, don't come here when you're on top of the world, but make it your business to show up with the setup team in the morning on Sundays when life is pulling you further and further and further under. Because when you are going under, the last thing you need is to stay away. You don't want to go to small group when you still have to tell everybody when they say, how did the interview go? I I still didn't get it. I didn't get it. You don't want to be around people who are supporting you and hoping for you and their questions are so hopeful that it makes you sick. So you stay home. Can I tell you, that is the time when you show up. Because God in your confusion is on the shore. (sighs) That text says uh, Christ revealed. That word revealed means that the Lord is present. They're discouraged. They're willing to do anything. And so they listen to a ghost they don't even recognize. They listen to this man saying, child, you got any fish? And they're so upset, they just say no. They don't even say, who are you? They just say no. They waited, and waiting is hard, just like prayer. Waiting is hard. Waiting is hard when you're experienced. It's hard when you're a pro. It's hard when you know the lay of the land. It's hard when you have all the knowledge and all the answers. Waiting is hard, but waiting is that nutty time right prior to God coming. Jesus comes. And when God has essentially said to them, not yet, Jesus has been on the shore. So God says, no, God says, not you. God says to these disciples in John, not yet. The last passage is is a, a passage when God just doesn't say enough. God says nothing, essentially. And we'll go to we'll go to Acts chapter 16 to look there. Paul is with his ministry group. And the language of this text means that they are refused by the Holy Spirit to travel to Asia. So uh, look here at these five verses, 16 verses 6 through 10. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, or Mysia, or I don't know why you say it, 
one of my teachers used to say, however you say it is how it's pronounced. So, you know, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul and his ministry team have been forbidden by God, by the spirit of Jesus, which is language that you don't see anywhere else in relation to Paul, uh, has, has forbidden them uh, to go. And what happens here? What happens is Paul gains a sense of urgency for another place. God has given him conviction. He has the gifts of God and the call of God to preach to the people of Asia. And yet God closes the door. And then the Holy Spirit gives Paul urgency for another place. He envisions another need. Now, this sermon series is not a sermon series where you should walk away thinking that the one way God will use you in whatever the work you do is by maybe, you know, starting a Bible study at your job or praying, you know, having a prayer meeting at the job before you start. It's not necessarily in that direction. And it's not necessarily in the direction of paying that much attention to the church and, and, and to what you do in the church, but this is where I want to lean into now because, because you can't really come to Scripture and think about God closing doors and having to respond to God closing doors without doing what Paul is doing here in this text. Our refuse, being refused rather, to do what we want or what we think we should do may be an invitation from God to serve somewhere else. And I'm going to lean out and say that it may be that you need to serve in the church. I get it. I know that you um, are passionate and I know that you have interest and maybe even call from God. Uh, You see the needs of the world and you know that what God has given you can meet the need that you see. You know that what God has given you can bring glory to God's name. I get it. So you wait and you look for what God will do. You wait and you look for the place that God will put you in to use those gifts to bring glory to God and to meet the needs of the world. You wait and you wait. You look at your gifts and you say, God, I'm ready. You look at the opportunities and you say, God, where do you want me to go? And God only closes a door and refuses to let you go in the direction that you know will fulfill that gift. I get it. So you resign. So you cower. So you sort of back off. So you get discouraged because if God has given you a gift and there's no place to put it to use, what else is there for you to do? What Paul's answer says is to meet another need. To sense urgency 
somewhere else. Paul's actions suggest that the antidote, maybe not the cure, but the antidote to discouragement is giving oneself for and to others. This isn't always the case, but it often is that when we serve, we open up space for God and for others to give to us in unseen ways the grace we need. (coughs) Serving. Serving is central to um, being God's people because God serves. And we do what we see God doing. God has served. God has given himself. And we who belong to God follow after God's way. And we serve as well. So maybe you are a college student here this morning. Maybe you are a student and you're looking at your future and you know that you will have to take a semester off from school because you don't have the money for next semester. And you're saying, well, I can't work and go to school, so I'll just work this time. I'm talking to you when I say, maybe you need to serve the church during that time frame. Maybe you need to back off the excuse of, well, I'm going to school and I'm working. Well, you're not going to school next semester. Is there an invitation for you? Maybe you're here and you're in a a time of of, uh, waiting for your next job, for your next post. Maybe you got fired. Maybe you got laid off. Maybe you are looking for work. Can I say to you that there may be other urgent needs like Paul for you to meet? Maybe you can put aside your perception of what God will do and where God will place you to use your gifts. And to open up yourself for something else. Paul Paul doesn't rid himself of the passion and the desire to see Asia saved. He doesn't lose that. What he does is he gains something else. He gains an opportunity to go to Macedonia. He still has the appetite and the hunger and the thirst to be here, but there is another urgent need where God has not closed a door. And my question for you is, can you uh, place this passion certainly where it needs to be, but also be open to the next urgent place where God might be calling for you. I, church, am asking you to to step up to other urgent needs. I'm not going to tell you what they are. I don't know what they are. I I I know what they are, but I don't know what they are. That's not what this is about. As much as me being able to say to you, uh, yes, you are gifted and you're passionate and you have abilities, maybe the closed door in your life, maybe this unknown time in your life is an opportunity for you to say, where else can I spend my time? Can I spend my energy? Can my passions be lived out for God? Paul has ambition, which is good. But in this case, the Spirit opposes his ambition. The Spirit opposes his ambition and grants him a different vision. I'm praying for us that God who has closed doors, that God in providence who has not allowed certain things to happen for us, 
would give us different vision. I think it's true. When God closes a door with one hand, that God opens other doors for us. And maybe in your life, this image will be helpful, that God who has closed one door for you, and maybe you're like Paul. It's not a no, it's not a not you, it's not a not yet. It's an unknown. You don't really know what this door's closed is being about. Maybe it's about you looking back from the door that is so long and large in front of you. Maybe it's about you stepping back and noticing that you're actually in a hallway full of doors. Where the hand of God is opening other places for you to meet urgent needs.